saw those two things. That unless we become like children, we will not even enter the kingdom of heaven. We saw that because we as sinners are so helpless to save ourselves, that all salvation must come from God. Even the desire to be saved. And so, just like a little child who, who feels it has nothing, uh, only the need comes to, um, as they come to their parents to supply everything for their life, so we, as God's people, come to Him for complete salvation. Uh, and uh, he, he grants that to us. And then we saw as, a, as we come into the kingdom of God, so we live in the kingdom of God as children. That as, as we begin, we continue to cultivate a childlike spirit. We don't leave it at the door. Uh, we continue to go on recognizing as we mature, that maturity will be seen in, in a childlike spirit. That's one of the paradoxes of the Bible, isn't it? That Christian maturity is to see uh, that we are really children. And we grow in our childlike spirit before God, leaning on Him, depending on Him, uh, leaning, as the old hymn says, on the everlasting arms, uh, just as a child clings unto their parent. Now, as we move on here, we're going to look at verses 5 to 9 this morning. So let's read that together. Verses 5 to 9. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by uh, whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame then with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So as we uh, began our look at this idea of Childlikeness. Uh, Jesus carries that forward then into the whole of the Christian life. And that if this is the mind and the heart attitude that we are always to cherish before the Lord Jesus, that is also something he himself cherishes in his own. He cherishes that childlike spirit in his own and he therefore guards that with great jealousy with great uh, passion that's that childlike spirit in us to trust to trust him to be led by him to receive everything from him and so as he goes on here 
uh, he says, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. Now, who is he talking about here when he's talking about uh, such a child? Is Jesus talking here about child protection in terms of the mind and heart of, of little children? Well, they are included in this group that he is speaking about, but they are not necessarily the exact people that he is speaking about. When he talks there about such a child, he's referring to all who trust in God. All who look to him as in, with a childlike spirit for everything concerning their salvation. And so we talk about the children of God. That if you're a believer this morning, you're a child of God. And so what Jesus is interested in, he wasn't interested specifically in saying, this is how we protect little children. Although Jesus is definitely interested in that. He is interested in nourishing and protecting those who would lean on him and have a childlike spirit. So they might be five, they might be 95. But they fall into that category that Jesus describes as one such child. And again, like we saw last week, that is so fundamental to who we are. To cultivate that childlike spirit before God. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is saying, this is what I think of all my people. Again, whether they're 5 or 95, and all points in between. That not one of them is to be despised or looked down upon. Not, not one that is to be dismissed. That's why he uses the language, whoever receives one such child in my name. To receive means to acknowledge them. To acknowledge that they belong to Jesus. To acknowledge their worth. That their education, that their standing in life does not determine their value. And so... This is, this is the way in which Jesus is guarding his people. That there are, there are no second-class Christians in the kingdom of God. That they are all to be treated, regardless, again, of education or social standing or how they look or how much Bible they understand or anything like that. They are to be received and honored. Paul talks about this later on in uh, 1 Corinthians, that those who are of uh, seemingly lesser importance, those who are less visible, are to be given higher honor. Or James talks about if someone in fine clothing comes into your assembly and you tell someone who may be of more of a humble mind or uh, 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 someone who uh, not, not of great worldly importance, you tell them to get up and give the seat to the person of, of great stature, you, James is saying you're doing violence against that person. You're not receiving that person. You're not acknowledging that person, that more humble living individual, the person who is not surrounded by worldly pomp and circumstance. 
So Jesus is guarding all of his children here. Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. So Jesus himself is identifying with that person, that disciple, who exhibits that childlike spirit. Jesus cherishes that, doesn't he? To the point where he says, I identify with them to the point where if you acknowledge them and love them and receive them, you are doing it as unto me. And so, again, it, he's speaking there not just about little children, but all who would follow him with that childlike uh, spirit. And then he goes on, he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So Jesus acknowledges his love for these little ones, his followers, his disciples, by saying, I identify with them. But he also acknowledges their importance and value by uh, describing in very vivid terms what will happen and what should happen to any who would violate such a little one as that by leading them astray, causing them to sin. The word in the Greek is the word scandal. What we get the word, the English word scandal. If anyone scandalizes one of these little ones, uh, that means to do something that would shock them and would, uh, would perhaps make that tender disciple disillusioned with the church. To say, here I thought this person was a strong Christian following the Lord, but now look at what they've done. There can't be anything to this. Or I must have been deceiving my... And so what they may end up doing is falling away. Or they may be enticed by that person and say, well, if this person can do it, if this person who has been in the church can say or do that, maybe it's okay for me to do it as well. There's all sorts of ways in which someone of greater stature can cause someone of more humble mind and heart to, to sin, to be scandalized. It could be through their teaching. It could be leading them away through false doctrine. Teaching them things about the Bible or about Jesus or about salvation that are not true. Ending up, of course, endangering their soul. Causing them to believe in things that are not true. The psalmist in Psalm 73, he was like that. He was a believer. He said, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. He said, I became envious of the wicked. They drove all the nice cars. They had all the nice houses. And he said, I became so angry and bitter in myself. He said, if I had have spoken out, I would have caused other people around me to be offended and to stumble. I would have hurt them by vocalizing my bitterness. 
because this man was a leader in Israel. He was a teacher in Israel. And then he said, oh, but when I went back into the house of God, I understood. Things became clear. But he said, if I had opened my mouth and given vent to what was in my heart, I would have betrayed the whole generation of the people around me. It would have been a flood of iniquity coming out of him. A flood of bitterness and anger. He would have caused other people to stumble. And he, he recognizes that. He recognizes that it's an organic union that he has. That he, he's not an island. He's not a, an island unto himself. But that we are all connected to one another. In the choices that we make. In how we worship God. In how we respond to life situations. Whether we go to church or not, what church we go to, all of these things have a, an effect not upon only upon ourselves, but those around us. And so Jesus lays out this warning, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, to engage then in a life because of your conduct or your words to sin, he says, it would be better. It would be better for that person to have a great millstone. A millstone was a huge, round stone that was used for crushing grain. It was often uh, a donkey or a horse would walk around in a circle and the, and the stone would crush the grain. And he says it would be better if that person perished than leading others into sin, endangering the very soul of one of these little ones. And so it's living a life inconsistent with our profession. It's making the faith offensive, or it's watering down the faith. Scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus taught, Jesus said, we're, we're very much along those lines said, you lay burdens on people, but you never lift a finger to help them. And you make them twice the sons of hell as you are. These were to be the teachers of Israel. But they were leading people astray, saying, salvation is all about what you do, your performance. They had no time for the love of God and the grace of God. It was all about your performance. And staying away from other people who were sinners. You see what they were doing? They were leading people astray. And that's why Jesus reserved his harshest language for the teachers of Israel. Well, it wasn't confined to them only. You could find it in an epistle, an epistle like the Galatians where Paul recounts that when he came to... Uh, um, when he came to a certain place, that there was the Apostle Peter and he was eating with the Gentiles. But when important people from Jerusalem showed up, Peter thought, this is a little awkward, so he got up, stopped eating with the Gentiles, and started eating with the important people. But it wasn't just him. Barnabas, it says, was also led astray by his hypocrisy. So even Peter himself was in danger of causing someone to sin. And so, really, what he's getting at here is that believers must not only believe the truth, but be very careful as to how they 
communicate that truth with their words and with their lives. To be guarded in the way that we talk and act around our family and our church and so on. Lest we endanger the spiritual life of those who believe and trust. Those souls who are cherished and dear to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are to prevent ourselves from sinning against others. We are also, he says, to prevent sinning ourselves and against ourselves. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Verse 7. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. In other words, Jesus is is speaking decisively as someone who knows that there is a judgment against all wrong that is coming. Friends, that, that should comfort us. That there is a day of justice coming. When we see such widespread injustice in the world of people being victimized and hurt and lies and stealing and murder and all the rest of it. The Bible celebrates the fact that there is a day coming when perfect justice will be done and it will be seen to be done by those who yearn for it. And Jesus is saying the very thing here. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Those who would lead others into temptation. He says, for it is necessary that temptation comes. In other words, this is going to be a regular part of our world until Jesus comes back. It is a necessary part of the world in which we live. It is, it is there. It's an undeniable fact. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So he continues on here again and, and, and speaks directly to the disciples as those who have a, uh, a particularly strong calling in this to be examples. To not only believe the truth, but to live that truth out. He goes on, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And then he says in verse 9, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. We know that salvation is by God's grace alone. He's not saying here that, that if we engage in moral reform, then we will get into heaven. But he is indeed saying that those who profess to be saved, those who are, have been saved by God's grace, will deal radically with sin. And that a life that re does not regard sin, as we were singing about in uh, 1 John in the, in the paraphrase, uh, has not really known God. And they, therefore, must be warned that they're off on the wrong direction. So, we will not only, as he says there in verses 5 and 6, 
seek to guard and protect others, we'll do the same for ourselves. And so he says, if your right hand uh, or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Of course, Jesus, as I've said time, time and again here, is using hyperbole. You can cut your hand off and gouge your eye out, and still the problem is right in your heart. You can still be a sinner. A monk can go off and live in a monastery and still be the world's worst sinner because God looks at the heart. You can't escape sin simply by hacking off parts of your body. Well, what does Jesus mean when he uses that language then? He is saying for us that because the soul is so valuable, that it is of eternal value, as we saw a few weeks ago, that if one should gain the world, it would not equal the value of the human soul. And because that is so, then we will be willing to we will willing to be willing to depart uh, from anything even as something as important as your right hand or your eye how precious these things are in other words whatever is leading us into sin even if it be something so important as your right hand or your eye He's not, again, intending us to, to, to take that literally. But what He is intending us to believe is that there are things in our lives that if left to themselves will destroy our souls. And it could be any number of things. Things that we do, and I think that that is seen there in in terms of the hand and the foot, the places that we go, or the eye, the things that we see. All ways and means in which sin comes into a person's life. It could be relationships. Could be the things that we are being taught. Moses warned his people back in Deuteronomy. He says, if your brother or your son or your daughter or your wife that you embrace or your friend who is of your own soul entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, you shall not listen to them. It could be pride in a person's heart that says, I don't need what the Bible says I need. You're not exhibiting that childlike spirit that looks to God for everything, for righteousness, for cleansing from sin, all of those things like a child you're looking for. But the opposite, Jesus says, is the spirit of pride and, and independence from God. He says, I can make it on my own. I can run on my own record, as it were. Proverbs says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so we can sin in the things that we do, the places that we go. Proverbs in, in chapters 4, 5, and 6 talk about that. and Warning the young man not to go into places of temptation, to where the adulterous woman is, to avoid those paths. And so it could come down to 
completely avoiding situations altogether. It says, and if the eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Jesus uh, gives us a little clearer indication of what he means here, uh, specifically back in chapter 5 at verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he goes on to say the very same thing. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And so this, Jesus is being very specific here about what he means by sinning with the eyes. This is what made Job say that I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a woman in a lustful way. You were deciding beforehand. Job was deciding beforehand. He knew that the, the control of his heart was, was seen in large part by what he let his eyes see. And how true that is. And of course, that's not just seen in terms of uh, the actual adulterous situation, but the, as Jesus says, even to lust after a woman, to look upon a woman to lust, is, is sinful. And so we see today with the onslaught of online pornography, uh, how that becomes a greater and greater trap for so many and that that has to be dealt with. That has to be guarded. How is it in your life? How is it in our lives as a church? What are we doing? Are we guarding our hearts when there is such a flood of information coming into our homes, through our computers, through our phones, in many different ways? Jesus says, because your soul is so precious. And if these things are leading you away eating away at your soul, as Peter talks about in that passage we read, lusts that war against the soul. They war against the soul. How precious is your soul that the devil would give anything for your soul? How precious is your soul when Jesus came and gave his all for our souls? How valuable it is, friends. And then, do we treat these things lightly? How then do we deal with these things? Is it simply through sheer willpower? Well, no, it's not. Just as we came in, just as we come into the faith, so we, we go on in the faith. Not only as we deal with one another, but as we deal with sin. How do you deal with those Sins that overwhelm. Sins that endanger your, not only your soul, but may lead others astray as well. You came in like a child. You walk like a child. You go to your Father. You go back to like the psalm that we read. When we were overwhelmed with sin, when guilt upon us lay, you forgave all our iniquity and washed our sins away. 
You go back to Him. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. He talks about the life of faith in verse 33 in chapter 11. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and so on. By faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus. That's why he goes on in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. The founder. The one who gives us faith. And the perfecter of our faith. That's where we go. Just as we started with Jesus, we go on with Jesus. And like helpless children, we say, Lord, there's this or that which has taken hold in my soul. How can I break it? How can I move forward? As you came in, so you move. In childlike dependence upon the Lord. We also read there in 2 Peter He calls them to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. There is an example when we're tempted to sin. With our hands, with our feet, with our eyes. When we're tempted to react negatively and sinfully against the world. What do we do? We go to Jesus. We go to His example. We go to His love. We go to the reasons why He died. He Himself, it says, bore our sins in His body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Where do you take your sin? Where do you take your struggles? Where do you take your brokenness? By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. We go to Jesus. We go to His Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How important the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives on a daily basis as we seek to walk in holiness and righteousness and seek to put to death sin. Friends, it's not easy, is it? To cut off the hand or pluck out the eye. And Jesus is using these, of course, as images of the real hard work that every Christian is called to do. And so those things are not easy. The Apostle Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is amazing. That is wonderful. I can do anything that God wants me to do. He doesn't mean 
jump over a church. But those things that pertain to my holiness and my growth in grace, I can do through the one who, who's, whose blood and whose wounds heal me, whose spirit strengthens me, whose word guides me and warns me and encourages me. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. How important is the word? It's like a stool. You move one of those legs off of the stool. The whole stool falls to the floor. Each one of those is so important. The ministry of Jesus. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of God's Word. Prayer. Jesus says pray that you may not enter into temptation. Giving thanks. Isn't this so important as to why why Paul, in all of his letters, he says, whatever you do, in all things, thanksgiving, thanksgiving, thanksgiving. Why? Because thanksgiving creates contentment within the human heart. It settles, it calms our souls to say, I don't need that to be happy. I don't need that sin to be at peace or to be fulfilled. But when you're busy giving thanks, counting your blessings, looking around you at your family, says, as, as Joseph, how could I do this thing and sin against God? God's been so good to me. How could I do this thing? Right? Thanksgiving is so important in our battle because the devil, when he comes to us and he finds us contented, and sitting in our own right mind, he knows that he doesn't have a foothold. Thanksgiving is so important in that battle. So friends, we have this warning from Jesus. And of course, we can't forget what Jesus says there on two occasions. In verse 8, it's better to go into life, into heaven, crippled and lame than go into hell with two hands and two feet. You go into eternal fire. And he says it again. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than, to, than with two eyes to be thrown into hell of fire. That too is a, a way in which God encourages us to holy living by showing to us that hell is real. Hell is real. Why did Jesus hang on that cross? Why did He cry out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Why was Jesus treated the way He was? Because He came to rescue us from hell itself. And that, friends, is also something in His love that He tells us about. Not simply to scare us, but say this is the way the universe is. That there is a heaven. That there is a hell. And Jesus spoke more than anyone else in the Bible about hell. He spoke more of hell than he did of heaven to warn us because we are so perverse. Our hearts are so wicked that we will, for the love of sin, we will throw all that's good and holy away. And we, in our more sensible moments, we say, how can that be? But we do. 
to satisfy that sin and that desire, we'll just take the whole thing and throw it out the door? We're so perverse. And we need those warnings that Jesus does in his love, give us in his word, that there is a place of hell. But that he has given us such help. He has come. He has shed his blood. He has given his spirit. He has given his word. He has given us one another. All to keep us on that straight and narrow path. Hoping in him. Looking to him. Thanking him for all the goodness that he's shown to us. So that when those times come where we have to cut off the hand or pluck out the eye, whatever we have to do, we're able to say, indeed I can. I'm able. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let us pray. Help us now, O Lord, as we go from this passage today. We thank you, O Father, that you have not left us in darkness, but you have shown us, Lord, what realities lie before us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to take to heart the words that you have spoken to us in these verses. Lord, that we would be careful about how we come across to others. That we would not, through our words or our actions, lead others, those who are vulnerable, those who are impressionable, into sin. But Lord, that by Your grace, by Your Word, by Your Spirit, by the blood of Jesus, we would be led in the paths of righteousness for Your name's sake. That we would be strengthened with all might in the inner man. And that Lord, You would bless us and help us to live a life that is pleasing to You. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's close in the Black Psalters this time in Psalm 32.